welcome to episode 110 of the Swampflex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording once again in two separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflex. Well, you know, kind of same as it was last time you and I talked, where we only talked about the coronavirus pandemic for the entirety of the episode, uh, with a few movie reviews thrown in there. But, you know, now we have this added pandemic of police brutality playing out over the internet uh, over the past couple weeks. So I guess I should just ask you up front, how are you doing? How's it going? Are you doing okay? No, actually, <laughs> it's been pretty rough the past week or so. I, I do think it's funny. So we're going to talk about The Matrix today. And I can't help but think that we're just in some horrible simulation and that this whole year isn't real. That might be best case scenario, because the way things are playing out right now, it's terrifying out there. It's malfunctioning. It's bad, man. It's really bad. (laughs) I I try to stay optimistic, but it's hard in these times. But I guess I'm holding out okay, all things considered. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. I've been doing a lot of staring emptily at my phone for hours at a time, watching videos of police beating people up and gassing them. Yeah, I I love their response to protests about police brutality is just more police brutality. (laughs) That's why we were out here in the first place. Right. Not a a good PR move. But I haven't really been doing much else. Like, I even stopped publishing on the website, I think for the first time since we started this, like five years ago, just because... It was hard to justify, like, writing about movies while, you know, watching that. And I didn't really feel like I was adding anything to the conversation. So the website's been very quiet. And uh, that is my normal outlet to speak about things. I've mostly just been listening and watching, donating where I can. And otherwise, you know, feeling good about the change that's come from this. You know, there's been some actual legitimate policy changes, especially in the last few days, that look promising. So... Even though it's been painful, good things could happen. I think, you know, the more pressure that's put on the lawmakers, the longer the protests go on, the more substantial change you'll actually see. So I I definitely support people that are going out there and protesting. Yeah. I I would say just keep the pressure on because good things are, are happening. There's actual change coming, hopefully. So, yeah, that's one thing to be optimistic about. And yeah, if you're going to tie that into the Matrix, like it does feel like it's not like these things haven't been happening constantly anyway. It's just like people are waking up to it and like sort of directly dealing with, you know, long term abuses of power. So I don't know. We'll probably talk more about corrupt institutions and police brutality uh, later when we're actually talking about the Matrix movies. But I guess I should also ask you just because this is a movie podcast. um, Have you had time to watch any movies since the last time we talked? So I finally got around to. Watching The Invisible Man, the Elizabeth Moss version that came out earlier this year, and I loved it. I don't know if you saw it in... Did you see it in theaters? It was the last movie I saw before I went into lockdown. Oh, really? We went out for one last nice meal at a restaurant, went to the movies, and I've not been out in a social situation since. Well, I love thrillers, and I thought it was a great update on kind of this classic tale for like... A modern audience and um, there were quite a few times where I was jumping out of my seat I, I thought it was very well done I had a great time I mean Elizabeth Moss 
you know, giving the same kind of like woman on the verge of a breakdown performance she gives in a lot of things, but really elevating that like monster movie material with that talent. Uh, it was great to see. But yeah, I mean, that, that's really the main thing that sticks out to me. What, what about yourself? I watched another one of those online film festival things. I know last time we talked, I was telling you about South by Southwest had this like free film festival thing on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And then this month, there was a similar week-long festival on YouTube for free. And it was, uh, I think, a charity event where they raised money for COVID-19 you know, research and World Health Organization type charity. It was called We Are One, a global film festival. It ran on YouTube for a week. It had contributions from like every major film festival you can name, like Berlindale and Cannes and TIFF and Sundance. And they kind of lended the festival, you know, movies either from past programs. So I watched some movies from like decades ago or, you know, new stuff that was going to play this year at their festival and like didn't make it because, you know, all that kind of social activity has been shut down. I watched about six movies. I'm going to shout out two, just because that's usually what we do on the show. Mm-hmm. One new one was this film called Crazy World. It is my first Wakaliwood movie. Are, are you familiar with Wakaliwood? No, I am not familiar with that. What is that? It is a film production company that's run out of this one guy's house in this like small village in Uganda. And he makes these like over-the-top like Schwarzenegger-style action movie throwbacks. With just, like, a laptop, maybe a green screen and a camera and, like, all his friends and family in the neighborhood. And they are just so energetically made. Like, the editing is so rapid fire. And the fact that it's all, like, non-professional actors just making the kinds of action movies they like to watch from, like, American studios. But, like, with these, like, no-budget resources. And they have this thing called a video joker. A VJ. Mm-hmm. Who... Uh, as this like master of ceremonies during the movies and hypes them while you're watching them. He's like, super, this is the best movie ever. Wait, is he on camera? No, it's just like constant narration from this like hype man <laughs> that keeps your like blood rate up really. Like he's just keeping you excited as if you were like a DJ at a party. And it's just so fun and so similar to the kind of like low budget genre stuff we like. But instead of, you know, you know, like movies like uh, Neil Breen or Tommy Wiseau's kind of films that get like popular for being like outsider art. They're like popular so people can laugh at them. Yeah. Uh, these movies are already having fun and are just like, you know, a party vibe. So it's not like mockery. You're just kind of like enjoying them on the same level that the filmmakers are. And it's just, I don't know. It's just so fun to watch this person make movies with their friends and they've been doing it for a decade now. So I've got this whole like back catalog to go through. Oh, I love that. Uh, I definitely yeah. want to check that out. I mean, I lo- I love anything that has that, you know, sort of DIY spirit. You know, we're going to make a movie at all. Yeah, it's very inspiring. And the thing with, like, Neil Breen and Tommy Wiseau, it's, yeah, it is sort of like you're laughing at them. And you feel like you're punching up a little bit, you know what I mean? But I could see in this situation, like, you're not laughing at it. You're just enjoying it. There's almost like a built-in MST3K commentary with the VJ, like, not necessarily making fun of the movie, but, like, pointing out... It's like offbeat quality at every step. So it's not like they're not aware, you know, like they're, they're hyper aware of what they're making. Yeah. And that's what I mean is like, you know, Wasau and Breen in their mind, you know, they thought they were making a great film 
you know, it was like very ego driven. Whereas this sounds like it's more communal and it has like a better spirit going into it. Yeah. And this particular one, uh, Crazy World, introduces the Waka Stars, who are a group of small children from the neighborhood that are supposedly like Kung Fu masters. Uh, so, like, even the little kids get to play action hero in these movie in this movie particularly cool and they did this thing where they added something special just for the fest where they interrupted the plot halfway through to send out anti-piracy enforcers by helicopter to like get bootleggers in their home so this like really like cheap looking cg helicopter with like these fake soldiers in it with like piracy enforcement on their gear and they like went into people's homes and like busted up their laptops and stuff in the middle of the movie so like they were really just having fun with the platform and with the type of filmmaking they were doing and yeah i would love to do like an episode on their films because they've, they've been doing this for a decade like i said so i think we would have a lot of fun talking about them yeah that's a great recommendation i'll have to check that out and uh another one i guess i'll shout out one older one from the late 70s it's called ticket of no return um it's part of the new german cinema movement that like fassbender was in Mm -hmm. but it was made by this lesbian director ulrika ottinger who i've never seen a film from her before because her stuff is just not as well distributed as like herzog or fassbender like it's something you have kind of a look for Mm -hmm. so it was really nice to see you know free on youtube this like really beautiful restoration of one of her movies this one reminded me a lot of playtime in that the protagonist is this like mute or like mostly quiet tourist. Uh, she's like going around Berlin and just sort of bumbling through situations almost as a like tourist, except in this plot, she is a alcoholic who is going there to drink herself to death. And all she does is drink in various bars and people like talk and chatter around her. And there's a lot of commotion around her. And that's just it. That's the whole movie. And like the most exciting things that happen are the outrageous outfits she wears. Like she's rich. So she just wears these really over the top couture, like high art fashion pieces. And you don't know what she's going to wear from scene to scene, which is like part of the fun of it. And then also just watching her slowly, you know, devolve into that leaving Las Vegas style acting where towards the end of the movie, she's barely human. She's just so drunk that she's like literally falling apart physically and dying on the streets of Berlin. So it's kind of like this absurdist piece that was like darkly funny in this like nihilistic kind of way, but also, you know, really hard to watch this person like destroy themselves over the course of uh, almost two hours. So it's like this kind of really weird art film and really beautiful costuming. And I don't know, I've never seen anything like it. It was really good. I mean, that sounds great. And I, I don't know, I feel kind of wrong for admitting this, but I do love films about alcoholics, you know, with leaving Las Vegas probably being up near the top, but... Yeah, I'll, de- I'll definitely check that out. Ticket of No Return. Oh, the, even the title, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's very grim. But the movie has fun. Like, there's, like, kind of Tati-style, like, slapstick gags in the background. And she's kind of a goofball, even though she's, like, on this self-destruction mission. I, th- I think the full title is actually Portrait of a Drunkard, too, after that uh, first title. Oh, wow. <laughs> really putting it out there. <laughs> cool, man. Well, yeah, it sounds like that... YouTube Fest had some good stuff. It did. It was a little more rich than the South by Southwest one because they were pulling from so many different festivals. But there was also plenty of like filler in there. I wouldn't necessarily say everything was like knockouts, but I've, I enjoyed a few of the movies a good bit. I hear you. And now that we're publishing again soon, I will start posting reviews from that. Great. 
And that's going to be the end of the sort of esoteric art films for the rest of this episode, because we are talking about one of the most popular film franchises of our lifetime today. So maybe in this instance, uh, maybe people will have actually seen the movies we're talking about. I feel like a lot of times we kind of go off the deep end. <laughs> I feel this like weird pressure to, we're going to be talking about the Matrix, and it's like, it's one thing to talk about a movie where you assume most people haven't seen it, but we're going to be talking about a movie where everyone has seen this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a little more pressure to like try to make some good points or some good observations, but maybe that's a little bit of self-inflicted. Uh, I don't think we'll have much unique things to say about it that haven't been thought of before, but uh, I think maybe the angle is you know talking about our personal relationships with it. It's the only way we could really come up with anything worthwhile here. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, buckle in. All that's coming up to you <laughs> right, right now. now. Right now, we're inside a computer program. Is it really so hard to believe? This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. So this is usually where we would do like a movie of the minute. You know, one of us pick a movie that the person hasn't seen yet. But I think it might be better in this instance to just sort of talk about what Matrix content we have seen before and like what our relationship with the original film was. I wanted to talk about the whole series for a few reasons. It, it kind of came up recently because I watched Dark City, which was released a year before The Matrix in 1998 yeah. and was very similar to it. Great movie. Yeah, very good and very like of the time. There were like a few simulated reality sci-fi movies with like Existence and strange days was another one that one and also uh the 13th floor was around that same time so it's definitely like in the cultural zeitgeist i also kind of lump in the crow too just for like visual aesthetic with the leather and all that and the like the kind of new metal-ish soundtrack or like techno new metal i don't know all those movies sort of are in the same zeitgeist. And The Crow was directed by uh, Alex Proyas, who also directed Dark City. So not, right. not far off at all. But The Matrix has actually been coming up in other ways, too, just out there in the cultural ether. Like last year was the 20th anniversary of the film. And there was like all this chatter about how 1999 was the greatest year for movies ever, which I don't think is true. I think every year is about the same. But, you know, people who are about our age and would have been, like, young in the 90s are the people who have, like, cultural writing jobs right now. So they have, like, a strong nostalgia for the era. What else came out in 99? Fight Club was that year. Being John Malkovich. But it seems like it was a very particular type of... I mean, because all those movies... I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, when I was a teenager, you know, I was in high school and... Yeah, The Matrix, John Malkovich, Fight Club. There's a certain appeal to like an angsty sort of pseudo-intellectual that's sort of angry at society and, you know, is listening to Rage Against the Machine and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Like, it fits together. And like American Beauty 2, I think, came out around that same time. Also, uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley. I'm not saying that there weren't a bunch of great movies that year. I guess what I'm saying is that there are a bunch of great movies every year, and over time you kind of forget the mediocre stuff and the bad stuff, and like all you remember is the really good stuff. Right. Well, I'm just saying that like 
all the movies I remember from that time period sort of fit into the same mold. Yeah. There's something in the like late 90s, early 2000s, the sort of angst that um, carried over into cinema. I agree with that. So yeah, it's a very representative film from that crop for sure. Mm. Other things, you know, there's a new Matrix sequel that was just greenlit recently. One of the Wachowski sisters is coming back to direct that, not both of them. Mm -hmm. But it will have some of the original stars of the film. And then also, you know, the movie has just been in the cultural zeitgeist because, you know, they are two of the most famous trans people working in Hollywood. And people have been going back into the series and looking for, like, trans allegories in the plot and in, like, the details. And there is a lot there. There is, yeah. When you're looking for it, it's definitely there. And we'll definitely get into more of that when we're actually talking about the movies. But yeah, what is your, like, relationship with this movie? Like, do you remember when you first saw it? Or, like, did you watch it a lot as a kid? I did. So I remember seeing it in theaters. And yeah, I was pretty blown away. You know, because again, like, you know, being in high school, kind of being into sci-fi and maybe a little bit of, like, into religion and philosophy... It just sort of hit all the marks for me. And then when it came out on DVD, I bought it. I probably watched it. I don't know how many times. But what was really strange for me is I remember you know, seeing the original Matrix in theaters, seeing the first sequel reloaded in theaters. But for some reason, I never saw the third movie, which is totally bizarre because... Like I said, I'm very into the franchise. I was super into the first one. I remember being a little disappointed and like felt empty after that first sequel. And then I guess I just never bothered to see the third one. So when you asked me to watch these movies, I was like, oh shit, like I never actually saw the third Matrix. And same thing with the Animatrix. You know, these are things that I should have been into. But for whatever reason, like, I kind of fell off and got into other things. So it was sort of cool to, like, go back and actually finish the trilogy and watch the Animatrix, which I really enjoyed. That gave, like, some depth and a backstory to it. Yeah, that's sort of what my relationship is. It's like being really into it in the beginning and then sort of waning off of it. And now, again, it's interesting to come back to it. I mean, I'm in the exact same boat. Like, I watched it so many times as a kid that rewatching it now, the first film, it really just, like, felt like I remembered every inch of it. Like, it was just so familiar. And it's from, like, a time of, like, pre-critical thinking as a moviegoer where I never questioned anything about the movie or how it was made or how it was achieved even like it was just like so obviously one of the coolest things ever when I was a kid where I don't even think I saw it in the theater I think the trailer and like the bullet time kind of imagery from it was so iconic that we were like I mean I was I think I was 12 when this movie came out so we were like playing that on the playground before I ever saw the movie it would have been like probably on VHS from Blockbuster I would have seen it eventually mm-hmm. I even went as far as buying a trench coat from a thrift store, a leather oh, trench boy. coat. Oh, boy. Which, you know, would have been a strange choice around Columbine <laughs> to have done that. 
also a strange choice because we live in New Orleans where it is so absurdly hot all the time that there's no reason for any person to own a leather trench coat. I would pay money to see a picture of you in 1999 in trench coat. <laughs> I'm so short too. <laughs> so like it would have made me look like a child even more so than I already was. I have terrible fashion history, James. I don't know if I was in my fedora phase when I met you or not, but yeah, definitely you were, was like tail end of high school. Oh, that's when we first met and uh, you had the chops, the button chops. Yeah. Oh boy. Shameful times. <laughs> <laughs> and also I was a new metal shithead at the time. So, you know, the soundtrack was in heavy rotation. You know, Marilyn Manson, probably one of the first songs I ever heard from him was on that soundtrack because I was banned from buying his CDs. It was the only musical artist i can remember my parents telling me no when they saw like antichrist superstar they were like that's not happening at least you were edgy like i was dressing in like american eagle and hollister because i thought that's (laughs) what the cool kids uh while also listening to shitty new metal so yeah (laughs) very, very bad times but the movie did define like a lot of things that i thought were cool like sci fi and like cyberpunk and you know, that sort of like alien spaceship aesthetic. Well, also like the kind of crouching tiger, hidden dragon, that like Kung Fu style. Wuxia. Yeah, it brought all that together. And again, and for me too, with the like, just getting into philosophy, I thought it was, oh my God, this is so deep. Like, yeah, we're all, you know, plugged into this false reality. And if people could just see what the world's really like, yeah, that definitely like had an impact on me as an impressionable child. And the only thing that really changed for me rewatching it was that I was kind of laughing at how deep I remember thinking the film was. Same. I still think the central metaphor is very strong and obviously speaks to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Uh, so much so that like MRAs have stolen the blue pill, red pill image for their own like evil intentions. That I find very interesting how you know, the red pill idea has been co-opted, but also the fact that there is now like simulation theory where there's like right. serious philosophers that do think there is a strong possibility that we are living in a simulation. The ideas in the matrix like are pretty solid and have, I don't know, solid philosophical ground to where there's actual academics that are pursuing those ideas. But like rewatching it, it really does feel like a lot of Wachowski movies where like the big overarching idea, yeah, is very powerful and very like adaptable to different theories and different ways of thinking. But a lot of the in the moment effect of it is just like, wouldn't it be fucking cool if we did this? Wouldn't that look awesome? Which is so fun to watch, but it's funny how much of the movie doesn't feel like deep thought. It just feels like this is the coolest shit we could possibly come up with. This is like the live action anime we wish that all movies were. And it's just so nerdy. It's one of the nerdiest fucking movies I've ever seen make this much money looking back on it. Well, just, you know, with the bullet time stuff and like what I found interesting watching it again was how much the first film actually holds up extremely well to kind of modern sensibilities and critique. Whereas the like latter two films completely don't for me so i don't know i guess we can start getting into like sort of the nitty-gritty of the trilogy and what our thoughts are of yeah the films 
you know, as a triptych sort of. But that first one, though, it holds up extremely well. I agree. I, I have no reservations thinking like this is one of the best you know, American action blockbusters of my lifetime. I have no qualms saying that. I do wish I felt that way about the sequels, but we'll have to get into why they're disappointing to us because <laughs> there's a lot to dig in there. Machines turned to an alternate and readily available power supply, the bioelectric, thermal, and kinetic energies of the human body. A newly refashioned symbiotic relationship between the two adversaries was born. The machine drawing power from the human body, an endlessly multiplying, infinitely renewable energy source. So because this is a very popular film franchise, I don't really feel like we need to get too overloaded on plot here, especially the first film, like even its title clues you in or like at least jogs your memory of what The Matrix is. It is a movie in which a hacker played by Keanu Reeves, who hates his office job, is looking for more in life than what, you know, American corporate living affords him. And he is recruited through his nefarious online activity to be woken up from his American nightmare. Uh, (laughs) He is told that he is living in a simulation. The world as we know it ended decades ago because man created AI that got out of its control and enslaved human beings and turned them into basically batteries They're like, we become like sources of energy for the machines to run off of. And he's woken up in his little gooey Cronenberg battery pod and uh, shown what the real world is, which is this like dystopian nightmare where you can only eat gruel and everyone's cold all the time and machines are trying to kill you every second of the day. He's also told that he's very special. He's a special boy who's going to save humanity. And it turns into this like chosen one Christ-like arc where he has to accept his role as the savior of humanity. And by the end of the movie, he becomes this like superhero within the matrix that can bend the laws of physics and literally flies away at the end of the movie, like Superman while rage against the machine plays over the soundtrack. (laughs) The sequels pick up from there. They're both released four years later in 2003, I think six months apart. And they don't really make much sense as individual films. They feel like one long five-hour story. I think that was the original intent. Really? Right. I think that's why they released them within six months. They were all filmed at the same time as basically one long movie. And then they just, you know, decided to cut it up and release it six months apart. But they they were all filmed at the same time. So in my mind, it it is one big five-hour long movie. Well, I got to tell you, after watching The Matrix Reloaded, where I was like, I wonder why I never bothered finishing this. When that movie ended, I was like, oh, now I know why. This is fucking terrible. It's like half a story, and it just ends oddly. I actually, I'm not going to do it, but what I had an idea to just read that monologue from The Architect. Oh, geez. At the end, when you actually listen to what he's saying, it is so ridiculous. And like, I think that's what, like, threw me off course. Let's do that, because all I'll say is that 
you know, Neo has accepted, Keanu Reeves has accepted his role as this Christ figure and then has to enact change in the Matrix and starts to exhibit godlike superhero powers outside the Matrix as well, which raises other questions. And then he, you know, is delayed a lot. And there's a lot of chase scenes that, you know, get him to this MacGuffin architect character at the end of the movie. And the architect basically explains to him, you're not special. You're part of the machine and you're part of this like cycle that repeats every so many years to give humans hope so that they will accept the Matrix program. This isn't like you causing change in the world. This is like the system as it as it rolls. That changes for the the next movie for Matrix Revolutions. But if you want to get into what the architect actually tells him once he gets to that point, uh, I'm all ears because I don't even remember a damn word of it. But that's exactly what I'm saying. It's just a whole bunch of gobbledygook. And I, <laughs> when I was sitting there watching it again. I was like, oh yeah, I remember you know being 12, 13, watching this, and it completely alienating me as a viewer where it's like, wait, what? Like this has gone off the rails. And then I was like, Oh yeah, exactly. Like you said, like, that's why I never finished it. Yep. And then watching revolution, it's very action heavy, but almost to a fault. Like it just sort of goes on and on and on and on. And, um, to me, like ends on a very weak note too. So in my mind, it's just every movie kind of kept going down in quality I think something I realized watching it again was like, or with watching the Animatrix too, which we'll get into, but the Animatrix is great because it adds a backstory and context and it deepens the Matrix universe. Whereas the stuff with the architect and you have the, what's it called? The Merovingian and the key maker and the this and the that. Like the sequel sort of tries to get maybe too philosophical, too heavy, and kind of losing its way a little bit. I think it just gets more and more divorced from reality. Like, if you think about the first film, it takes its time and, like, really grounds you in this, like, I mean, a familiar, you know, corporate reality that, you know, if you've ever worked a desk job, especially uh, thinking about when we worked in a call center, that's sort of like cubicle living you know, feels real and feels lived in. And then I think about halfway into the first film is like when they wake him up, you know, it takes a long time to get there. And then he trains for a while and goes back in the matrix for like a final showdown with uh, Hugo Weaving's character, agent Smith, who's like the big bad in the films, the sequels just go more and more out. Like they keep zooming out and showing you more and more like story and just not in an interesting way or a way that, you can really care about like you said matrix revolutions the third film is mostly like this final showdown with like the ai machines and another final showdown after that's over like after the big fight for the human city of zion the last bastion of humanity that's over and you're like oh finally movie's gonna wind down a little bit i just watched like mech suit robots shoot at other robots for like an hour finally this is over and then there's another 40 minutes where neo has to fight an army of agent Smith's back in the matrix. It really feels just so detached from anything I could possibly care about. 
it actually reminded me about how we never talk about superhero movies in this podcast, even though they're like wildly popular. <laughs> like this is definitely like Marvel Cinematic Universe style storytelling where like it just pushes off like final showdowns until the next event. And it keeps like expanding out all this mythology and just kind of like moves further and further away from any kind of like tactile lived experience to the point where it's just hard to care. It's very numbing by the time you finish the, the trilogy. And again, with the Animatrix, it's like actual world building. It's deepened my understanding of the Matrix and its history and the logic of it. Whereas when you start tacking on key makers and there's like a train that has to bring programs to the Matrix, it's like, wait, you're getting like bogged down on the details. This trilogy would have worked so much better if the second movie was a prequel where we learn like how the matrix came to be. Cause that's like one of the most interesting questions of the entire thing. And they don't really give you that big of a backstory. So like if the second movie kind of told you like how we got to this point, And then the third one was like the revolution. Uh, I think it would have worked a little bit better. And that's what the animatrix gives you. The animatrix starts with like a whole backstory for how this happened. And actually like really, makes the situation more complicated and like makes you look at it from a different angle you hadn't considered, you know? And it's interesting too, but to hear the architect go on and on about you're an anomaly, but you were built in to the matrix and then free choice and all this sort of rambling nonsense. uh, Yeah. It totally alienated me as a viewer then and a viewer now. And it feels like a huge leap from the first one. Like, I felt like I was watching, like, an out-of-order episode of some, like, Battlestar Galactica-type show where I'd missed, like, three seasons. (laughs) You know, like, I felt like I didn't know who anybody was or, like, why I should care about them. There's especially this, like, young character who's, like, a huge fan of Neo's and is kind of a dork that, like... Anytime he was on screen, I wanted to crawl out of my skin and like run away. Like the dorkiness of all the influences they were pulling from, like like sci-fi nerdy quality that makes the first one like so exciting, just gets out of hand in these where it's, I just feel like I'm the wrong kind of nerd. Like the way that like other people will gush about like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or like Doctor Who. And it's mm-hmm. like, I know I'm a dork, so I should like these, you know, capital D dorky things but they're just not speaking to me. And that, that's how I felt watching this. I felt like I was just not connecting to it the way I was supposed to. Well, and also on the point of like connecting, when we talk about like the visual effects in the first film, those special effects hold up extremely well. Yeah. But in the second and third film, okay, there's this big fight scene with a hundred or I guess a thousand agent Smiths That's totally ridiculous, but it uses this like very synthetic kind of effect, like straight out of a video game, which they use it again in the third film. And it is totally divorced from any sense of reality. And it has not aged well at all. I think this is where we disagree a little bit. Really? It literally looks like I'm watching a video game and it's some of the worst like kind of special effects you can have in a film where it just, I don't know how you could disagree. I don't disagree that it hasn't aged well. I, I do. I do agree that the CGI is like extremely dated in a way. The first movie isn't that part. I don't disagree with. I do think that fight scene with Smith in the um, courtyard where there's a million of them in there. It's very fun. 
But man, some of the shots, like I had to cringe a little bit. Oh yeah. She's like, oh god, that looks horrible. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who greenlit this? Well, in like the first one, everything is very tactile. Yeah, they were using a lot of CGI, but they're also doing all this wire work and like uh, the alien comparison. I think fits with just how like grimy and lived in the film feels. Both of the sequels feel very sterile and just not real. Like it feels like a movie set at all times. Mm. So that's immediately lost. Like you have to like kind of give that up. You're like, okay, we're not going to keep this like real lived in world anymore. We have to just accept that this is Battlestar Galactica all of a sudden. But I think the two fights with Neo and Agent Smith, I think those are a good example of the good and bad kind of action scenes in these films. And maybe why the second one is a little better than the third one, even though I I think they're both bad movies. The first fight where Agent Smith is turned into this like computer virus that turns other characters in the Matrix into multiple Agent Smiths. And there's like hundreds of him attacking Neo in this like playground courtyard area. That goes into this like Stephen Chow kind of like Kung Fu hustle territory where it's like so over the top. It's hilarious. It just never ends. Like there's just floods of this character repeating himself coming in and attacking Neo. And he's like running across their faces and this like straight up like Looney Tunes kind of way (laughs) where it's extremely dumb. And I don't really care about what it means in the context of the story, but at least it was fun to watch. Uh, And there's also that like hour long chase scene with the motorcycles and the ghost twins and things. I was going to say like that, was the main redeeming thing for the second movie for me. That car chase scene is pretty fantastic. It's a little long. It's but long. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's fun, yeah. But the third movie is when it really gets into like superhero film style storytelling where not only is it not tactile and like totally CG nonsense, but you're also supposed to take it seriously. The war with the machines where they're attacking the human city and also the final showdown with Neo and the endless legion of Agent Smiths in like the mud. And it's this like really self-serious good versus evil showdown where I didn't really care who won. I just wanted to be over. At least the second one was silly. I didn't like it, but at least I had like flashes of like, oh, that was a fun gag they did. That was a cool maneuver. The third one, I was just completely tapped out by the time we got there. I did watch all three in a row, and about halfway through the third one, yeah, I completely checked out. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, all right, I get it. Yeah, we're at war, and the war keeps going. And then, like you said, oh, yeah, Neo's got to have his showdown with Agent Smith, and there's another 40 minutes, and then the ending. Well, we should talk about that, like... Because there is a fourth one coming out, which I'm actually excited about because I was not satisfied with the ending of this trilogy. I think what it is, is like, basically, like, they agree on a truce. We're going to have peace. We're going to let people know what's going on, and they can decide if they want to stay in the Matrix or not. What? (laughs) I'm still struggling with that idea. That didn't feel like a victory. To me, it's like, I thought Neo was, he's this messiah figure. I thought he would completely dismantle the Matrix and wake people up. And what happens is just like, oh, we're, we have a truce for peace. 
the matrix still exists, but now we're going to like give people the knowledge and they can decide for themselves if they want to stay in it or not. And it's like, oh my, like after almost seven hours of this, like it ends in like a peace treaty, which to me, it was very unsatisfying. And it ends with two computer program characters, the Oracle and the architect sitting in the park, looking at a beautiful sunset, you know, musing wistfully, like, do you think Neo will ever return? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Goodbye. It's very weak. <laughs> Extremely weak. But one thing I will give it credit for, because I've thought about that ending a lot in the last couple of days, and I think it was prophetic in a way, because I don't know if they intended to say this, but it's almost saying, like, there's no unplugging yourself from technology. Like, we're too far gone at this point. Like, all you can hope to do is have knowledge and come to peace with it and you decide like how much you want to let technology affect your life. But there's no unplugging from the matrix in, especially in 2020, like there's no going back. There's no like being completely unplugged at this point. And I don't know if they had the foresight or like if that was their intent in that ending, but that's sort of how I've taken it is like they were aware that, most people, even if you told them about the Matrix, would probably rather live in this like nice simulated reality than the true reality of, like you said, gruel and uh, machines hunting you and being cold all the time. That sort of thing. Burning Man raves Burning in his Ion City. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Like maybe there's something to that, but in general, like that ending was weak as hell. I think that's interesting, but I think it changes depending on what metaphor you want to apply the Matrix to. When I look at this movie, I mostly see, and this is the way I think I've always seen it, so it's hard for me to like step outside of it. I see this metaphor about like these systems of control and this very like rigid structural living, like the kind of like capitalist paradigm you're born into and have no power to change. And like you live the way you're live, you're supposed to live your life and doing this like nine to five office work. And it just feels very unfulfilling. You're like, there's gotta be more to life than this. And I don't know why there's all these like systems keeping me in this small box, but I, I feel like there's more to being alive than this. And maybe once you're broken out of that, like the actual truth is a lot more horrifying than you were prepared for. But I think there's like a reason why when Trinity is helping Neo rescue Morpheus. All the agents aren't just taking over regular people. They're mostly taking over cops and like cops are helping them even when they haven't been turned into agents. Mm -hmm. So like they're punching cops in the face. And when Morpheus tells Neo what the matrix is, he says, you know, you feel it when you pay your taxes or when you go to church, uh, you feel it uh, when you clock in for your office work. So yeah, the movie feels very tied to that metaphor for me. But then there's other people who see, the prison of gender identity uh, and like societally enforced gender norms being something that need to be woken up from. Some people see the exact opposite where it's like, you know, the MRA people see this system where they're being told by leftists that gender is a construct and, you know, it's actually a biological thing that they need to wake up from like liberal propaganda to, to fully mm -hmm. understand. Um, it's a very malleable metaphor and i think that's why it's so great i mean especially that first film you really can 
just any sense of like oppression or that you're out of place in some way or that the system is not working for you or you're unhappy, unfulfilled, unfulfilled, whatever you have inside of you, you can project on that film. And that really makes it stand the test of time. And that's pretty remarkable to do that. You know, I think for me, when I first watched it, you know, I was going to like a Catholic high school. So obviously I picked up on the, the Jesus stuff and like watching again, there's also elements of like Buddhism and Gnosticism. And so there's like all this religious stuff in there. There's a lot of philosophical stuff about free will, especially in the second film. That's pretty interesting. And then, like you said, like with the Wachowski sisters, there's also stuff about gender. You can read into it. Like there's a lot going on there. And also the simulated reality, actual scientific theory that you were mentioning earlier. I don't think that's, you know, a mistake. I think that is built into the fabric of the movie. And one thing I noticed in the beginning of the first movie, they show like a book. I forget what it is. He has something like hidden in a book and it's Baudrillard's Stimular or what is it? Stimulacrum, whatever. I actually own this book and it's all about like the hyper real and it's like a very obvious nod to this like philosophical text. But it does raise the question like, what do you think you would do in this situation? Would you go the way of like Cypher in the first film where you see the truth? It's too much. You would prefer the delicious steak and the like sensory pleasures or would you really like want to be part of the revolution and eat gruel all day i mean sometimes the simulation is better than the real i find that to be one of the more interesting philosophical questions of the matrix like what like what would you do are you asking me or is this a hypothetical? No, I'm actually asking you now. Oh, I would stay in the Matrix and eat the simulated steak. Me too. I would. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, I mean, even like testing that theory over the past week, there's been a lot of people like bravely bucking against the systems that keep unfair power balances in place, especially for black people and have been beaten and tear gassed for the transgression and then continue to go back out the next day with like some people out are out there with like broken arms and like eyes that have been like gouged out by rubber bullets Mm -hmm. and still show up the next day to protest i gotta say i don't know that i am that strong or brave of a person I, i don't think that means that i have no use in like the pushback for those systems but i'm definitely thinking that if i was faced with this kind of like monumental life shifting choice i'm kind of proving to myself that i would not be a brave hero i would be like a uh simulated steak eater see and that's i'm interested to see where the fourth film goes because you know at the end of the third film it's all about choice like we're gonna tell people what it is and they can decide to stay in the matrix or they can unplug if they want but my thinking on it is like i think if you presented most people that choice they would choose the matrix like nine times out of ten and i think that's pretty telling and true to where like i don't know i want to be able to like experience earthly pleasures and like steaks and drinks and sex and all these sort of things and hey even if they're simulated it's better than some sort of horrible dystopian existence even if that is like technically the truth 
Yeah, I mean, and maybe that makes makes us weak people. I don't know. If the third movie has a point, that might be it. I'm I'm struggling to think that it does. <laughs> but like the second one, like you said, has a lot of questions between what is free will and what is like pre-programming. I think it blows it by the end where Neo becomes a superhero outside of the Matrix and can stop machines even when he's not in a simulation. If they had pushed that idea further and like made it like an inception type sub level where like the matrix was actually a simulation within a simulation. They had to break out of that's what I thought. Oh man, that's exactly that would have been great. Well, and doesn't it kind of make sense though? Like, I don't know. I could be getting the mythology all wrong, but you know, the architect says that Zion is like comes up every time in this simulation. It's an anomaly. There's been, what is it like five Neos before you so it's like the idea of resistance and this Zion city is like built into the simulation. But to me, doesn't that say that that's part of the simulation that what they're experiencing down there, you know, quote unquote, outside of the matrix is also part of the matrix. But I, I could be wrong. I really don't know. I think at least that is a more interesting wrinkle and if the third movie had gone in that direction then there might have been more to chew on there but as is like it literally is just like a straight up superhero battle for the fate of good versus evil um except for that final conversation between the oracle and the architect where they say you know people have a choice whether or not to wake up i don't really think about that much though because it's like such an afterthought after all the battles you've watched for that to just be like a conversation at the very end like it doesn't mean anything it's like i I already invested in all this time watching humanity's fate being decided by this battle now you're gonna tell me the system continues on as it was it feels very just like muddled and i don't really feel like the third one has much to say and once they really cracked open that you know, reality as presented in the movie is reality and Neo is like a superhuman God within it. Then like, I just stop having reasons to care. I mean, I agree. I think we're on the same page. Well, let me ask you, because this is a podcast where we usually don't bring up movies just to shit on them. Um, (laughs) What are like positive aspects of the second two films for you? Like I couldn't have all been bad. No, no, no. I, for the second one, I did love that car chase scene. I know it's a little long, but technically, like, and and for the third film, too, like, technically, they're pretty outstanding. I also, like, as much as I hated the stuff with the architect, I love when movies have that, like, grand reveal, like, main character walking to this, like, door that he only has the key to, and that's going to have all the secrets. The lead-up to that ending with the architect... I was like very invested. Ultimately, it didn't quite pan out. But um, I think the second film, I mean, it just suffers because it doesn't have a definitive ending. It's just a to be continued. They're basically one movie. Yeah, it's one movie. And I thought a lot of the action scenes were very cool. I don't know how I feel about the like orgy stuff. I have thoughts on that. (laughs) <laughs> it's like everyone's very sweaty and making love and it that scene felt like it went on forever that is the only 
improvement in the third film. There are two giant sweaty sex parties in the second and third film. The one in Reloaded is this like Burning Man rave in Zion where it's just endless bodies sweating in this like earth tone leather (laughs) scraps and it just never stops. And then Neo and Trinity have like very chaste like missionary sex uh, that I don't know. I was just not into that at all. But in the third film, all the computer programs have their own sex party and it is this like lesbian it's freaky leather it's freaky kink sex <laughs> and i was way more into that and i was watching that and it felt like the most alive that either of the sequels were in like they were really into the costuming and staging of that computer program sex party and i was like is this the movie you wanted to make because if you wanted to make a like kinky cyberpunk film we all would have been on board for that i, I would have been a lot more awake for it because mm-hmm. um, I, I perked up during the just the amount of money they blew on the costuming for all that like leather gear in that scene with all those extras. I was like, okay, this actually feels like you care about this. It feels unique. Um, so that was like the big improvement between the third and the second one for me was that party. <laughs> just, now I'm just thinking back to that Zion sex scene. It just went on for so long and uh, it really wasn't that sexy to be honest, but no, there, there's some good stuff in the second one. And then the third one, I mean, it's a lot of action. I guess I could say that. I mean, it definitely puts a pedal to the metal, but there's not a whole lot of good stuff I can say about the third movie besides that club scene. And uh, I guess I had fun with the Smith-Neo battle in the end, you know, in the rain and all that. I guess that was cool, but it didn't really love the third one. That's what I was going to say is like my positive note is just Agent Smith in general. I like him. He's a good villain. I think, you know, Lawrence Fishburne gives his best performance in the first movie. I think Carrie Ann Moss gives her best performance in the first movie. Keanu Reeves is kind of the same throughout the series. Like, he's kind of like one note, which, which is, is fine exactly for the character. What it needs. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. But Hugo Weaving is dialed to 11 throughout this entire series. And in the third film, he has this like square off against like the replacement Oracle casting, which I guess we could talk about that. That was a little odd, but he squares off against her and throws this like fresh plate of cookies she made against the wall and <laughs> smashes them. And he gives the most evil grin I think I've ever seen on a human face. That was not like a cartoon, you know? And I was just like, wow, this guy really is just on fire in this series. Like Hugo Weaving really does knock this whole character out of the park. Well, and his his laugh too. I oh, think yeah. it might have been that same scene, but yeah, that was chilling. Like, what do you think about the Oracle recasting? Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I was really weirded out by it, to be honest. Well, what's the reason? Did she pass away or she just I think she did. Okay. But in that case, if if you couldn't replace her, why replace her with another black woman that looks similar to her? If you're going to address the fact that she's a computer program that can inhabit any body, then why try to cast someone who looks so similar to the original person? It was just a really weird, like, half measure. That goes to another problem I had, too, like, the transition from the first film to the second film, you know, where it's like a whole new crew on the ship or whatever. And they do give some backstory about, like, why this person's here, but... It was kind of jarring in the same way the thing with the Oracle 
was jarring. It's like, you know, in that first film, you're so used to the crew. This is a crew of the Nebuchadnezzar. And they, you know, of course, some of them die in the first film. But then the second one, it's like a whole new crew. And I was like very jarred, like out of left field. I mean, the thing with the Oracle, they did explain it, I guess. But it wasn't like that, like satisfactory of a explanation. I just feel like it should have been more drastic. The movies do have this sort of built-in theology about like your projected image of yourself versus your real body that I wish was further explored and I kind of hope is pushed further in the fourth movie that's supposed to come out cuz like one of the big losses that the Wachowskis had to like give up with the movie studio was that they wanted the character of Switch in the first film to be played by one gendered presenting person in the real world. I think they were supposed to be a male person. Yeah, and then and different in, in, in the, the Matrix. Matrix have like a female body. They did eventually cast the actor as like this very androgynous, like or genderless image to sort of like still represent that in some way. But I feel like, you know, between that and the Oracle, there's a lot of like identity play yeah. that especially is pertinent to how we live our lives online. Like we construct fake virtual identities for ourselves on the internet, which is how all these simulated reality movies came about in the first place. Like these came out in the early days when people were spending time on the internet in the first place. And like, we're really thinking about how to construct a new identity that suits how you think versus how you like physically are. And then also like, what's the difference between a real world and a virtual one. Yeah. So yeah, it just feels like it's sort of like a half measure where I would really love to see a new entry in the series, like really push that to some further degree. And the Oracle recasting feels like just sort of an extension of that disappointment. And they do sort of touch on that. I remember there's a line when Trinity reveals herself and the character says like, oh, I thought you were a man. And she says something. Most men do. Most men do. You know, there are like subtle allusions to that aspect of it, but I think because of the time period, I don't know if we were like quite there yet to like address. I don't think fully. the directors were there yet because they weren't out yet. Yeah, but maybe a fourth one in the twenty twenties could you know address that stuff. No, and again, directly. like that's why I'm excited for this fourth one. Like typically, I feel like okay, you had a trilogy, yet three movies, like it's over and done with, but. I feel like there's a lot to chew on still and it can go in some really interesting places if it decides to go there. So I I am pretty enthusiastic about the fourth matrix. And I totally agree with that. And it felt really, really weird to finish two movies that I very much did not like. I I don't think this was necessarily a great use of my time to watch these two sequels, but at the end of them, I was still like, Oh, I'll still be, you know, in the theater to watch the fourth one assuming that movie theaters continue to be a thing whenever that finally gets comes out. But I do also do think that's a good transition into the animatrix. Yes. Which more so than the two live action sequels really thought about what you can do with this universe building. Yeah. Whereas the two sequels build off of the same story and like sort of follow this like man versus machine war until it's like end in this like chosen one arc savior arc with Neo to its logical end. The animatrix, which is an anthology film. It's a bunch of short stories that are all animated, some hand drawn, some CGI, some, a mix of the two 
they are set in the universe and tackle a lot smaller concerns and a lot more interpersonal, like lived in experiences. And early, I'll just say like, I think it is the only film in this franchise that even approaches the greatness of the first one. Like, yeah, there are flashes of greatness in this movie that are at, are very worthy of being called a matrix movie. Yeah. Any anthology picture. It's like, it feels like some sort of score. It's like how many of them were good. If we had 10 stories, like good versus bad. And in this one, most of them are good. There's maybe only two or three that I didn't love, but a good chunk of these stories in Animatrix are like solid and really go deeper into the Matrix universe and go to some like very cool places that the original movies did not. There were a few stories in this one that I loved that probably rivaled anything I saw in the first Matrix movie. I mean, we can go into the specifics, but overall, this was like very solid. I agree. Like, I really liked this a lot. And that's kind of why we saved it for the end is just because we could talk about something positive at the end instead of just like constantly negatively digging into what the sequels are. Um, I think, you know, we kind of have to start at the one that maps out the war of the machines. It's like this two part, the two parter. Yeah. It's a history of, you know, humans building AI, AI becoming conscious and like self sustaining and wanting to form their own country in this kind of like Israel way where they're like separate outside of humanity and being too good at creating new machines so that we tried to squash them for like, I want to say capitalist reasons. And then they come back with a vengeance. They are like, well, you're actually very weak though. We could easily dominate you if we wanted to. And yeah, it feels like a more sympathetic and more realistic, I think version of the machines that they're not evil because we created them and they're smarter than us. They're evil because they were abused and enslaved and decided to fight back. And they're only evil from our perspective because they won the war. And it's rendered in this like really beautiful hand-drawn style. The scenes of violence are really gruesome and don't pull any punches. It's like actually hard to watch at some points. Oh, especially the one like female robot that they beat. Tear her flesh off. Tear her her flesh off. I was like, my God, like that's some dark shit, dude. Like I was not expecting that. And the artistry of the visuals is like really intricate in that whole uh, segment of the film, particularly the flesh being torn off her body is like gruesomely depicted and the other way around when the machines start, you know, torturing us and seeing what we're useful for and seeing what inflicts the most pain on us before they decide to turn us into batteries. That whole thing is like actually painful to watch. You kind of lose that in the matrix movies. Like when Neo is first woken up in that gooey Cronenberg pod, that is like gross and gruesome and like very tactile and you can feel it especially when he pulls that like feeder out of his like esophagus. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel like you ever get back to that at any other point in the series. So yeah, it, it felt good to like see a movie that could deepen the mythology and get back to the tactile, like in the moment, like lived experience of living through this like simulated reality and actually feel like it had something to say. I don't know. I was really impressed by it. So the first two parts are fantastic. And like I said earlier, I would have loved that to have been, I guess, a prequel, because that story is so interesting. And then later on, there's one, I think it's called World Record, about this like 
Olympic sprinter or whatever, and he um, basically breaks the matrix because he's so fast. And like, I loved the animation style on that one in particular. It kept me so engaged, like, because each story, you know, had a different animation style. So each one felt like I was going into a whole new story, a whole new world. And that one's like overly detailed too, where like he tosses his car keys to a valet and they're shot like the monkey throwing the uh, bone in the air in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like right. him tossing this car keys, this is like, you know, cinematic, beautiful, overdrawn moment. It's just like overly animated. And then the short itself actually has like a new wrinkle to the Matrix mythology where like you can wake up by reaching like a physical euphoria through athleticism. Yeah. It doesn't only only have to be like a mental thing. Yeah, which is cool. And like the other one that I really, really liked besides the, the first two, which are so great at kind of giving the backstory of the Matrix universe. I really liked the one, I forget the title of it, but it's basically they find this robot and then they try to, I guess, create a matrix universe for the robot, which is this very trippy, like very psychedelic universe, like some great visuals in there. And then it ends on this kind of like terrifying note where this poor woman is like trapped in this like simulation with this robot that wants to like essentially try to have sex with her. But man, that one blew me away too, just from the visual style. Like I was like, damn, this is like, this is some trippy ass shit, dude. <laughs> like, this is so cool. It's definitely much better use of the computer animation aesthetic than the final segment that like the one where it's a spaceship crew, a lot like the one in the actual Matrix movies squaring off against the machines and it's all CG. And there's this weird like flirtatious strip kung fu scene that's not very like interesting. I kind of dug that. You didn't dig that? Really? I don't know. Like, No, that was my least favorite one. Well, the story overall is my least favorite, but I liked that sexual energy. I feel like that was kind of missing from the Matrix universe. Like, well, I mean, they wear so much tight leather. I don't know if you could say it's totally missing. But the actual sex, like like you said, when Neo and Trinity, you know, have sex in the movie, it's like very bland. Yeah. Whatever. I didn't feel any real like passion. They should be tonguing the holes in the backs of each other's heads where the uh, mind port goes into. Oh, my <laughs> should God. Be playing more with that. <laughs> you just started a whole new fetish, dude. <laughs> I can't be the first. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I did feel like that last one was, besides that that sexy stuff, it was, yeah, it was pretty disappointing. But overall, like, most of the stories work, and they're really good. Well, before we move on, the, the sexy stuff in that is not anything that you wouldn't see in the advertisements on any um, streaming porn website where they're like always trying to advertise some like horrific CG simulated porn <laughs> for you to click on. It's like the exact same like thing. It is. Yeah. Maybe if I was, you know, it was still 2003, I would have been like what 15 or 16. Maybe it would have spoken to me then, but I was just kind of laughing at it from this current vantage point. <laughs> I had a couple segments. I thought I liked even more than the opening thing. Even though I, I feel like the opening was a very strong deepening of Matrix mythology and like actually made me appreciate the proper films more, at least more so than the other sequels. I feel like, you know, this backstory origin story of how the war panned out actually felt thought out and mm -hmm. like intricately planned. But I liked more so 
the ones where they were playing around with what other genres you could pull off in this universe. Like there's a detective noir story. I like that one from a visual aspect, the like black and white sort of aesthetic. I thought it was very cool. Story-wise, it didn't really do much for me, but um, visually, that was one of my favorites was, yeah, a detective story. It was just a straight noir segment. Like, they didn't really try to put any kind of flair on it story-wise. I will say that it reminded me of something that was missing in the other, in the live-action sequels, though, was just humor. Like, it was a very funny segment. Mm. There's a part where the detective's cat tosses his hat to him when he forgets to wear it outside to go on his investigation. Like he forgets his fedora and the cat tosses it to him from the that was cool. balcony. And I was like, Oh yeah. Jokes. Like there haven't been any jokes since the first film. Um, and I also really liked the ghost story segment where also a cat runs away from this pet owner and she goes to seek him out in this, uh, abandoned house that the neighborhood kids have decided is a haunted house. But really it's just like a glitch spot in the matrix where the programming's not entirely put together. And yes, spooky things happen because the system's malfunctioning. Which I like that. Like the first movie kind of touches on that. Remember when he has deja vu and they're like, oh yeah, that's a sign. You know, there's a glitch. It's also cat related. Yeah. But I wish it would have explored that a little more because no coding, no programming is perfect. So you're going to have those glitches. And yeah, I, I thought that one was very cool. at sort of fleshing that idea out. Yeah, and I think all these movies are like proofs for concepts that could have been extrapolated into better sequels. I mean, like you were saying, the opening segment would have been a better sequel than the second movie we actually got. Or people coming into the Matrix through unconventional means, whether it be like through physical prowess or through this malfunctioning program spot. Like that stuff's more interesting than the superhero special one savior arc that we got instead that really could not sustain a whole three film story, at least not enough to keep my attention. Like by the end, I was just really tapped out of those where like the animatrix, I'm glad I saved it for the end. Cause it was like reinvigorating me. It was like, Oh yeah, there's still a lot to explore here. Uh, they just didn't do it. Yeah. And again, like that's why I am pretty excited for a fourth movie. There's a lot to tackle there. There's still more that they can go into. So Oh, we'll see. And it's kind of a shame that the most visually striking of these sequels was the one that went straight to uh, VHS and DVD. Uh, the Animatrix did not go to theaters. It came out the same year as the other two sequels. And if any of those were going to play like locally as a midnight movie at the Britannia or something, I'd rather go see the Animatrix than out of the other two. And that's the one I would recommend people seek out while we're waiting for this uh, this new one to arrive. Just watch the original Matrix and the Animatrix, and... Maybe a YouTube uh, recap of the trilogy, if you need to know what the story panned out to. Do it in 10 minutes instead of five hours would be my recommendation. But no, I I am happy that you chose this episode because, again, it was nice to see that the original does hold up so well, and then to also see the Animatrix for the first time, and like you said, be like, oh, wow, there's... Yeah, there's a lot you could do with this universe. And then that got me invigorated for the fourth one coming out. It's like, okay, let's see what they do with this. So that was very enjoyable. Yeah, and it's going to be a summer where we don't get giant blockbuster movies. Like there should be 
Marvel Cinematic Universe scale action movies on the screen right now, and they're not there for right. obvious reasons. So I, I thought this was good timing too, just on that front. It felt nice to watch something dumb and easy to digest, even if it did have like kind of larger philosophical implications too. So yeah, I'm glad I watched them, even though I didn't enjoy half of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it goes. Well, like I said, we paused publishing over the past week or so. So I don't have anything really to promote other than, you know, donating to people who are actually doing like legitimate political action right now. You know, there's a bunch of local people you could donate to. There's the New Orleans Workers Group has been doing a lot of organizing for the protests and they have a Venmo where they accept donations Mm. and Women with a Vision has been doing great work for years as well. If you want to keep it movie related, Patois Film Fest, I donated a little bit to them as well. They do like human rights advocacy from like a film perspective. So, you know, it's not completely alienated from like entertainment. And they were supposed to have their film fest, I think, around this time. It was supposed to be Patois and Overlook Film Fest coming to New Orleans. It's the start of like our movie festival season. So you can still support these people, even though they're not able to fully operate right now. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. I think Brittany and I are going to talk about elevator horror. You've heard of elevated horror, but we're talking about horror movies set in elevators. That's our next topic. Well, I'll definitely listen to that. We'll see y'all then. All right. Bye, Bye, everybody.